0: Thanks for tuning in to this special telemedicine edition of the Data Point podcast. This episode is one of several leading up to the annual meeting of the American Telemedicine Association in New Orleans, Louisiana on April 14th through 16th. Check out the conference. I think you're going to want to be there. And if you don't believe me, these next several episodes are going to try and prove it to you. Sometimes radical changes in our healthcare systems come as a result of a new technology or a new drug or vaccine being discovered or even a piece of legislation. But sometimes those big changes come as a result of a hurricane. Hello and welcome to Data Point, the podcast where we focus on all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. Our guest today is Dr. Karen DeSalvo. Dr. DeSalvo is an internal medicine physician in New Orleans, Louisiana. She's also spent a significant part of her career working in various roles within public health. At the federal level, she served as coordinator for health information technology, as well as being the assistant secretary for health in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Prior to her national government service, Dr. DeSalvo served as health commissioner for the city of New Orleans. And prior to that, she led the building of a high-quality primary care network serving the most vulnerable in the New Orleans community following Hurricane Katrina. On top of all that, she's a brilliant thinker and a lovely person. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation just as much as I did. Karen, thanks so much for being with us today on Datapoint.
1: Oh, Greg, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation
0: as am I you know one of the things that we like to do on the show Karen is in addition to talking about the work that you're doing, I like to give the listeners a little bit of context in terms of your background. How did you come to the point where you are today? I know that you've had some really really interesting experiences and in, you know various levels of government and within industry and with uh, you know sort of paragovernmental organizations. There's a great story in there. I wonder if you could share a little bit of that with our listeners.
1: Sure. Well, I want to start with just um, something a little personal, which is that I grew up in Austin, Texas, in a poor neighborhood, and uh, my dad left when I was young, and so my mom raised us by herself, and I was shaped and supported for that early part of my life by the really strong... Um, community and social infrastructure in Austin, Texas. It, it meant that I had access to good, safe public transportation and after-school programs at the Austin Recreation Department and um, eventually good school system. When we moved uh, between fifth and sixth grade so that I could be in a, not just for me, but for my mom wanted all of us to be in a, in a better school system. And mm-hmm. that is... Um, Embedded in me is this idea that um, even if you start with little, if you have a good community construct and um, ways to attend to your to the social drivers of your outcomes, it makes a big difference, and and it, it it really drives a lot of my thinking as a public health physician about not just helping a person, but thinking about making all the zip codes healthy. You know, we have that zip code challenge in the country where. It's a stronger determinant of your health and, frankly, your economic and other outcomes than, than um, sometimes what we think about things like your genetics. And I don't think any little girl ought to be struggling from that. We ought to be making um, it 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 so that every zip code provides opportunity. And I think fast-forwarding to my where I spent most of my career, which is practicing clinical medicine. I'm an internist Mm -hmm. and practiced mostly in safety net environments like the Charity Hospital in New Orleans and. Really learned a lot from my patients about um, how they had a lot of barriers to their wellness, and and that you know all the great clinical medicine I could provide, or my team or colleagues, is going to kind of end at the doorway if they didn't have housing or educational or economic opportunity. And really um, think about them all the time when when I was either making policy at the local or federal level, or the work that I do now. That it's not just um, those little girls, but whole families that um, are struggling with sometimes invisible things that we take for granted, um, those of us that, that don't struggle with those things. And I want to see that we create a world where there's a level, more level playing field so that people can really fulfill their um, all opportunities.
0: You know, one of the things that I read about your work, Karen, is, was in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and really helping to rethink the way primary care is delivered to some of those populations that uh, were so dispossessed at that time uh, and had been underserved for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about that work and how it shaped uh, some of the things that you've been working on since then, you know, at various levels of government and uh, in other ways?
1: Yeah, that was already almost 13 years ago that that we had that catastrophe of Hurricane Katrina, and you know, it was um, it was a really transformational time for our whole community in the New Orleans area. And in the health component of it, it was one of those moments in history when we took uh, that time of catastrophe to find opportunity. And it's a, it's interesting, Greg. Even this many years later, I have this very visceral, um, deep memory of of us. sort of, you know, looking at each other and deciding that we were going to go forward as a community and do this together. And we were already so behind, you know, from a health standpoint going into that form that I thought, oh, we can only go up. (laughs) But, of course, it could have gone much, much worse. Um, And and our, you know, so so I just uh, first want to make sure that it's clear to you and the listeners that our work here was um, a a really community- Engaged uh, effort that was multi-sectoral, but it it also, I think, caused us to have to do a lot of rethinking about um, what we prioritized and how we were doing things like funding and paying for care, and and we had a, a, essentially landed on a four-pronged approach to rebuilding the healthcare system in Louisiana mm-hmm. that that meant it would be grounded in primary care that it would be digitized. So we would um, jump into electronic health records and interoperability. Third, that we would um, uh, focus on value and quality in our payment models. And then um, finally, that we would expand coverage. And this was, you know, back in 2005, before the country was really uh, broadly moving in some of these directions. uh, I will tell you that some 13 years later, we've made progress in all of those areas and achieved our goals. We built a really robust, sustainable primary care infrastructure in this area that serves about a few hundred thousand people. And they're the same folks that used to sit in emergency rooms at Charity Hospital and other places and wait for care. And those sites are all, you know, electronic, using electronic health records and on a regional health information exchange and improving in quality. And we've expanded coverage and we did do some nice experiments and with payment flexibility. We've got a little bit of that embedded um, I still find that that um, payment changes are going to be one of the hardest things for the country, but hopefully mm-hmm. we'll get to talk a little more about that. It was, um, but I, I think so. The second was we had a very strategic approach and we achieved all of it. And I think the third the third piece of this though was it wasn't quite that top down and structured. It was it was a lot more organic work, um, which uh, in which we created prototypes and then we developed policy that was informed by those prototypes and then and then could support the things that were good that were happening. And so, you know, from a from a work standpoint and a policy standpoint, I'm a really firm believer that um, there is great benefit from having multi-sectoral, interprofessional collaboration to solve mm. problems because you do better together, that um, you do need structure and strategy um, overall and, and, and clear vision and goals. But on the other hand, I think you have to be willing to test and learn and iterate along the way, which is that third area of like literally creating the prototypes as we went and saying, no, that's not how you should do community health workers. They should be did this way, you know, in terms of payment or structure. Sure. And and that, I think that just drives a lot of the way I think about and, and do my work uh, ever since it was really formative for me.
0: You know, this is, it's really a remarkable thing and you noted it, but I want to, I want to come back to this. The pillars that you, that you talked about, you know, a focus around primary care, making sure that everything is digitized. Um, a focus on value and quality, and um, expanding coverage. All of this was happening before, you know, the things that we think about today. We think about all those things as being sort of a part of our focus today. But this is, as you say, 13 years ago. This is pre ACA, right? This is, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, predates. I think it predates the High Tech Act. Like there are all kinds of. Interesting things that have happened since then uh, that you all were working on earlier. And I think it is fascinating. You know, you talk about the grassroots nature of that work. As you were going through that, were you at that point engaging people outside the traditional realm of the health system? You know, were, were, were were you beginning to address some of those social issues, you know, that maybe were around housing or or transportation or you know some of the other things that we think about as social determinants of health today? Did those come into play as you were creating those and developing that framework for solution?
1: They did, um, and I, I want to mention a couple of examples of it. But first, I just want to say a word about the framework and the window of opportunity that we that we found ourselves in. In the middle of that disaster, which was, you know, I had been practicing medicine, including primary care in a, a really traditional environment at charity hospital, very doctor-centric, um, using paper, and had over the course of time had a variety of experiences of of making good improvements uh, mm-hmm. in, within that framework. But when we were able to step out of that because we were literally kicked out of the, hospitals because they were closed and right. and working on the street to create this new fabric. It, 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 just, the clarity around, well, the best evidence shows we can save the most lives, you know, by, um, increasing access to good primary care and good primary care means that you ha- can see what you're doing well and identify gaps, which means you've got to have digital information. It was really for us, um, Having seen our paper records turn into bricks when they flooded, there was no yeah. question that we oh were going to go back to that. Right, so it was a really easy leap. And then, and then we wanted to reward outcomes and and value, and not blame patients for or doctors for bad care, but really think about how you create a value driven system that that is enabled by systemness and not just by what one person does or, or thinks. And make sure everybody was in, like have a tent that 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 had coverage expansion that everyone could be. Um, a part of so just in that moment of of clarity, I guess we dug into some of the same thinking and literature that has led to these other national efforts, and um, we um, I, I think we really benefited from a lot of great national thinking in the space. So I just definitely want to acknowledge that what we were doing here uh, on the ground, we very intentionally tried to inform that work from from what really smart people who had done good work knew in, in other places, and that included. Thinking about the non-medical determinants of health, and it was really mm. clear to me as a doctor um, that that um, what my patients were often asking me about was not their uh, medication regimen for their diabetes, but how they were going to get to see their son in Angola um, when they, and they, how they could get off work in time to do that, and what was going to be the most effective bus route Angola to prison here, um, and and just sort of like very social services kinds of or social work kinds of questions that I was ill equipped to. To handle and so I knew that these were challenges. Um and we'd i I'd done some work, some research work that we've published um where we did qualitative and quantitative assessments of that. So it was on our mind. It was on my mind certainly. And I you know we did um we did ask early on for CMS to support us in building models that would address the uh, social determinants, not just the needs of individuals, but you know, transportation systems, things that were more broad and they flat out just told us, no, CMS does not pay for addressing the social determinants of health. Thanks for playing. Just um, <laughs> ask again. And, um, you know, and, you, and and by the way, 13 years later, we have in the field a huge demonstration that CMS is doing to look at addressing the social determinants of health, the accountable health Communities model. And that kind of a big shift in national policy where 13 years ago, it was just, thought of as the silliest idea ever, and now we're actually doing not just one, but about to start two other demonstrations out of CMS. is very exciting to me that our country can that quickly begin to conceptualize the multiple drivers of health and think about where and how we need to be making um, big, big investments to support, again, not only an individual, but to start thinking about making broad community change. And we found other ways to do that work here. We used, um, We leveraged philanthropic dollars, and as part of our three-year demonstration here, we did have um, population capitation payments that gave us very broad flexibility
0: Interesting, and
1: allowed me as a clinic manager and leader to hire community health workers and, legal, and medical legal teams and provide transportation and food access. So we were doing all of that in our demonstration uh, project. It's just that The when that ended, like in many of those demos, even today, you go back to the regular payment system, which doesn't really support it yet. But I I think we're making good progress as a country. But I I will say this, too. Man, practicing medicine, when you know that if you ask somebody if they're going to bed hungry, you've got a way to address that, just frees up that that communication with your patient, but also then you know that you're not sending them out into this, you know, 99% of their time, which is going to feel really difficult, but rather you're going to be able to help them navigate a healthier life.
0: You know, for what it's worth, Karen, I have just uh, spent a few days at the South by Southwest Interactive Conference. And Mm -hmm. as you know, it has a pretty significant health track. uh, And it's something I've been a part of for several years. But This year, the number one emergent trend that I saw uh, at a macro level was this recognition that the social determinants of health need to be a primary focus for us. And so we saw a lot of discussions around system thinking and design thinking to help solve broader issues related to health. And I know, you know, this is one interactive conference, but I think it does jive with the fact that, you know, you mentioned that CMS is now running some pretty significant um uh, test beds uh, to determine how we can more adequately address these things. And it's really showing up in all all parts of the population, which I, I certainly find very encouraging. Um, mm-hmm. And that actually takes us to a good point for a break. Um, we are going to be right back with Dr. Karen DeSalvo. So stick around.
2: Today's show is brought to you by Blue Spire, a full-service digital marketing agency focused on complex and highly regulated industries of healthcare, senior living, and financial services. Rapid changes in the healthcare industry are causing consumers to seek out trusted advice, demand more transparency, and access to information and content. With over 30 years of healthcare experience, Blue Spire knows how to help you reach, communicate with, and gain trust from these consumers. We help you engage with the right content at every touchpoint, from the first symptom search to appointment scheduling through care management. Visit us at bluespiremarketing.com to learn how we can help you deliver relevant, engaging content through ever-changing touchpoints that matter.
0: All right. We are back. You are listening to Data Point. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Karen DeSalvo. Karen, before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the formative work that you did, you were able to do uh, in public health following the Katrina disaster. But later on, you were able to spend some time in Washington um, interacting in policy at the highest levels of government. And I know one of the things that you mentioned uh, pre-break was an interest in reforming payment models uh, and how payment models mm-hmm. were working and, you know, how the private sector played into some of that payment flexibility that uh, the, the, that we were talking about. Can you give us a sense of, you know, some of your points of emphasis during your time uh, in D.C.?
1: Definitely. You know, the, the experience that I had as a doctor and um, health system leader and public health leader, all of those touch points just kept reminding me that uh, much of the way that we were paying for care delivery was was by the piece, and not giving mm. enough flexibility to the front line to deliver services that it needed to deliver to meet people where they were. You know, in, in, in uh, New Orleans, as an example, when our health system, plural, shut down, and we were using mobile units uh, and hacking together, you know, kind of oh, this church is a good place to build a clinic. We we really wanted to use tools like telehealth, and we mm. we tried with uh, some of those earlier versions, um, and they weren't really ready for technological prime time. But it was just a I think a reminder for us also though that if we were going to do say telehealth with a specialist who was in another community, they weren't going to get compensated for it, right. and it was also um, sort of a difficult in the workflow of the clinical team and. But it stayed with me. And in fact, when, it, when I got to Washington, uh, the first job I had there, I was the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. And one of the first meetings that I had was with a team coming in to talk to us about telehealth and, and payment flexibility. And it led to a series of, of eye-opening conversations that I had, um, including things like we have some about 30 some odd definitions of telehealth in the mm. federal government and not a lot of alignment about payment and what kind of technology should be used, and it, it drove uh, a lot of us up there as we were not just not thinking only about the sort of technology components of healthcare, but the, uh, when we were doing our delivery system reform work um, to, to develop new payment models, was that the more flexible we could make the payment model um, and not be so specific about the when and where and the how care gets delivered, but allow providers to meet patients where they are um, and do so with appropriate accountability and oversight that that, yep. that in, in just in the way we had in that three-year demonstration in New Orleans but take that really to scale, that you could do things like telehealth if that made the most sense for folks and, and kind of break that kind of federal mindset that telehealth is a tool for, say, rural populations, which I knew firsthand. It was also a great tool for urban populations and, and people who are incarcerated. There's all these other you know, reasons that... Um, that you might want to use at all these other additional populations, and we needed to get our mind out of the service-specific component and move sure. to a broader, flexible care and outcomes um, kind of kind of model.
0: And how did you how did you begin to tackle that uh, throughout your time, you know, working in central policy circles? How did that how did that begin, and and you know where have you seen it evolve now? Um, you know, for our listeners who are less familiar with reimbursement models, maybe give us a sense of where we are today and how we got here, where perhaps you think some of the next steps are uh, in terms of freeing up uh, the reimbursement to be able to provide care uh, in, in line with the way that those frontline clinicians you referenced uh, believe is best.
1: Mm-hmm. I think there's at least three things happening concurrently. And uh, one is policy. One is the technology, and the third is the consumer expectation. Mm. The policy component has rapidly evolved um, since I started uh, in the federal world in January of 2014 until now, some five years later. It, um, uh, between actions from Congress and actions in HHS, there's been a lot of movement to uh, allow for providers to deliver care in many formats, not just one-on-one doctor-patient visit and in some areas where there's more flexibility, like in Medicare Advantage, there, there's been more latitude. Given, uh, I think there's been more uh, acceptance that inside of uh, other accountable entities, so Medicare Advantage being one kind of accountable entity responsible for the total cost of care. Sorry to get all wonky, um, but accountable care organizations are a similar um, kind of uh, financial and delivery construct. And mm-hmm. in the inside of those models, we're seeing a lot more ACO. And those organizations delivering care through platforms like telehealth or asynchronously uh, u- using data. So we're seeing that care systems that are given more flexibility through um, payment models, some in demonstration and some that are more mainstreamed, that that naturally starts to emerge. And it's getting easier to do that for populations that are, say, seniors or folks that are at work um, and don't want to you know, leave their desk or leave the line for mm-hmm. kids in school. There's a lot of ways that that um, we're recognizing that uh, t- telehealth and telemedicine um, can—and I use those two things distinctly—that they that they can be a valuable tool for providers and and really just um, so instead of, uh, of getting more focused on how to pay for what when to really just say the goal is is that the diabetes is controlled or that the asthma is controlled or that people stay well more generally, mm-hmm. um, and and that we're seeing the the policy supporting the providers and doing the work. Um, I think the second area is about the technology. And back when this was introduced as a care delivery tool to us after Katrina in 2005, it was a hardware system on a rolling cart that we had a lock in a closet. I mean, everybody, you know, it's sort of ridiculous. If you're not going to go whip that thing out when you're in the middle of a really busy clinic, it's just, it's very difficult when it's not part of the workflow. But if you think about how dramatically The world is changing. It's on our smartphones, which are not ubiquitous yet, but getting there. And um, I think technologically, between cell communication and you know ongoing advances in broadband, not reaching you know Appalachia and everywhere that we want in the country, but I think we're going to get there. We're going to have the the um, um, the the underpinning, the cellular and and broadband and other underpinning that will allow lighter tools like smartphones to carry that information and make it more accessible to people. Um, and 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 there's other opportunities there around documenting what happens in the encounter using natural language processing mm-hmm. and storing that information because now we have cloud-based storage. So it's, it's just technologically getting more feasible to do a, as a regular course of business. So it's not really a regular course of business. And that kind of brings me to the consumer um, so consumers are pulling it. And I, I think we see, you know, millennials or, or those that are covered on some of the health plans that's like a, you know, an after in that vein are accustomed to that kind of eight, that kind of, excuse me, digital communication with others. Maybe not as much for all consumers, but I think that pull is going to get stronger and stronger as people realize that that a great deal of, of um, medicine can be done without the human touch, uh, especially chronic disease follow-ups and things that maybe rely more on labs or some, maybe some of the initial assessments. Uh, and so I, I expect there will be more pull just as the policy is enabling it and the technology yeah. is as well. I think there's going to be um, a little more pull. I think the pull will also come from uh, employers and um, as they begin to recognize that there's some uh, other opportunities. I think what we miss. And, what, and there's maybe a couple of key things. One is clinically. Um, I know I can do a lot of medicine by video and by phone and by email, but there's a lot of stuff I cannot do. And sure. I um, and, it's, and I don't mean just listening to someone's heart. I mean, touching somebody, being in the room with them, um, it creates a human connection that causes them to tell you things they may not otherwise have told you that really matter mm-hmm. for the way you're going to prescribe and treat or diagnose and treat. Um, it also, I think there's a, a a lot to the healing touch that sounds a little woo-like, but um, it does seem to matter that uh, people are touched. And that's, I think, one of the other potential downsides that, that concerns me, which is particularly in seniors, that we aggravate social isolation by doing a lot of care for them in their home and they don't have as much uh, human to human contact. So I think there's a lot of good, it's more enabled. People are more interested in it. I just want us to begin to already start thinking about what are we missing, right? What are the potential downsides and can't do it all using that delivery mode, but I do think it'll really free people up and hopefully make care more affordable and more efficient.
0: You know, and one of the things that I've, I've talked to a number of people about um, leading into the American Telemedicine Association's annual meeting is the fact that if we are limiting the role of telehealth in terms of just replacing a face-to-face visit, we're really, really missing the mark. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that it plays exactly to your point that this is a tool in the toolbox. It is a part of the care continuum. It does not replace Uh, face-to-face or human-to-human connections, if I'm paraphrasing you correctly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that's true. Um, The the little hmm you heard me make is that Mm. what what I do want to be careful about is that um, we don't add a new point of contact, a new service that we can charge a fee for, because that's the last thing the healthcare system needs to do to itself (laughs) is is drive across. And and so far, there's a little bit of indication that's kind of what's happening, because we haven't quite... This gets back to payment flexibility. We haven't said, you know, you're still going to get paid for doing this work or it's going to be built in. Let's take primary care, you know, built into the global capitation that that you're going to have. And you don't have to, to worry about the sort of for the piece work. I think it's also the challenges about documenting what happened in the encounter. And mm-hmm. as we get better with that technologically, I think there will this is always the problem even with telephone medicine. I wouldn't always do as good of a job as I needed to. And I think most docs would say that or after I was a nurse call lines of documenting exactly everything that happened. So we've got to be meticulous about it and treat it, you know, like a visit so that we can have a record and remember what happened and, and be able to have continuity for the next the next visit. But I, I, I do think also, by the way, we're just beginning to understand the power of this of telehealth for B two B communication for doctor doctor to doctor or hospital to hospital or oh, for enabling really specialized services to happen, and that starts to change the thinking around network adequacy for for health plans. And you know, like, do you need to have a dermatologist? Do they have to be in that zip code or that town if they're going to be the best dermatologist or the best best pathologist or the best whatever? Um, I think we yeah. also need to start freeing up our brain around how this liberates geography, liberates from the the, geographic underpinnings that we've had in medicine for a long time.
0: Yeah, I I read a a news article that popped up uh, this week about uh, kind of a a really unfortunate situation where uh, a patient had been recommended by his, you know, initial treating physician to have back surgery, but ultimately uh, was able to get a, a Telehealth consult from a from a specialist, and I ultimately wound up being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Um, yeah. And that's obviously uh, an an outlier kind of situation, but I think it speaks to what you're talking about in terms of being able to, uh, you know, access the right resource for the case, even if they're not necessarily sitting mm-hmm. next door. Um, I, I'm curious about: have you seen examples? you know, either in industry or through some of the, uh, the test or, or uh, pilot work that you've done through government plans? Have you seen any instances where you feel like that, that concept has, has begun to, to prove itself out or, you know, has even been tested at scale?
1: I haven't yet. Um, I, I think that the closest that I, that we would come to it so far is what the VA has been able to do. Okay. Um, and and part of the reason that the Veterans Administration has so much latitude is, is because they're not bound. Let's see. First of all, they have a global budget, so they're they have very flexible payment by and large. Where technology might be lacking for a veteran, they're able to provide it, so they don't have stark stark issues around things like inducement.
0: Mm. That
1: sometimes can get in the way. Uh, they also um, don't have. Um, uh, prof- health professional licensure restrictions in the sense of of, cr- of crossing state boundaries because they're working on federal property and they've been right. making some additional moves to, to free that up. And so there's these, these other things that can bind up the private sector. Now, I, you know, that said, Kaiser Permanente, I believe they're at a point now where more than half the primary care visits are virtual. I, I don't know the statistics on their specialty care visits, but I could imagine a big national system kind of structured and built a little bit like the Veterans Administration because Kaiser Mm -hmm. has got some similarities in terms of their budget and payment and technology capabilities that that they would be a good place to look for um, additional resources. If I ran a big business, you know, if I ran Comcast or something Mm -hmm. like that, I would be extremely interested in driving this agenda because I want my employees to have center center of excellence level treatment for everything. Um, And I wouldn't want it to just be it's kind of the way it is now. We're using a second opinion on paper, but but for it to, to actually be able to incorporate real time conversations between the clinicians, but also uh, to be, to include patients and families.
0: Yeah, and you know it's interesting. I I, I think that we're seeing that beginning to crop up. I, I can say even this week, I've talked to a, a small businessman here in Austin who, as he was constructing his benefit system for his employees, again, this is a small business based in Austin, he's not only made it optional or available, but he's made it mandatory um, for employees to use, to get a telehealth second opinion from a nationally recognized expert before doing any kind of surgical procedure, which is hmm. a really, really interesting thing. And if that starts to happen at scale, you're right. It is really going to shake things up. Um, you know, from a from a network perspective, um, and frankly, from a, a a traditional continuum of care perspective, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, I I don't know if you're going to go to this whole conversation about disruptors, but I'm going to go there.
2: Let's uh, let's do it. I,
1: I guess <laughs> as I think about you know what what an employer wants or what a consumer wants in the future, um, we we have come to. We have come to know that it is possible to be more preemptive or anticipatory about our needs in other sectors and to help guide us to the best value or the lowest price or the most accessible of just about anything.
0: Mm-hmm. you
1: know flights, trains, shoes, you name it. And um, we just we haven't really leveraged that yet for a bunch of reasons in healthcare, and I get really excited about um, the kind of work, for example, that a CDS is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they're already providing telehealth consultations um, as a part of that new business line that they're doing and thinking about, about yeah. meeting people where they are, not just at the neighborhood drugstore, but online as well, and, and being as preemptive as possible. Similarly, I think um, you know the, the increasing availability of things like smart speakers in our homes means that we're going to be able to, uh, if we allowed it, uh, be listened to and it would start to share information with us about you see your back's hurting you might think about this as a resource first as opposed to sending you straight to the surgeon right. and um, more to, more intentionally just asking the question I'm, I'm having back pain or I'm thinking about going to see a surgeon and you can you could build into a system like that well, you know, typically, these are the, you know, typically, you want to first see physical medicine and rehab, or internal medicine, or whatever you want to encourage as the best evidence-based line of care, and mm. make it easy. Help make you make the appointment. Then, and there, oh, I see that you're, you know, I see that you're in town this week based on your calendar, and that you have an opening, and there's an opening at this internal medicine doc, and they're only this far away, and the bus will get you there, and and. You know, you would think that that's for rich people, but you, uh, you may have seen the news article that Molina, which is a, a provider of Medicaid services, has just announced that they're going to make Amazon Prime membership available to their beneficiaries as wow. a test to see if they can start to leverage that kind of smart system uh, to link people with healthier food and with transportation and other resources. So I... Uh, and I'm, I think that's great because you got got to build equity in from the front, uh, especially um, you know for people who may not naturally right now have smartphones, et cetera. we got to make sure the technology it doesn't prevent them from being their healthiest self. But I, I think we're just beginning to understand how the digital world is going to enable better decision-making, more accessibility, especially to things that are uh, evidence-based. And I, I, I think there's a world in which um, we also start to – um, turn those um, smart smart speaker kind of conversations that right now are a little bit flat, though they're building their uh, augmented intelligence to make that the clinical conversations more robust, you could easily turn that into a visual conversation. And it could be with a real provider or it could be with a virtual provider.
2: Wow.
1: And, and so I think the healthcare system needs to pay a lot of attention to that because uh, it, it's technologically nearly feasible. I think it's clinically um, getting some legs because we're getting better at augmented intelligence and we're mm-hmm. recognizing it's not a supplementation, but it's a support. Uh, and people, frankly, uh, respond to it. They they like the creative and, and proactive nature of the way their lives are supported and encouraged in other sectors. And I, I, I think the more they get a taste of that in, in medicine, uh, the more they're going to want.
0: And boy, what a fantastic um, kind of cliffhanger to leave us with, Karen. Um, <laughs> I, I want to encourage all of our listeners who are getting as fired up as I am um, <laughs> listening to this conversation. Um, both Karen and I are going to be speaking at the American Telemedicine Association in New Orleans, your home city, um, mm-hmm. April 14th through 16th. And so I would strongly encourage you, if you have an interest in being a part of that uh, to go out and register uh, to meet us there and to continue this dialogue. Um, Karen, I am so appreciative of you sharing your time and your thinking with us. Um, thank you for all the amazing work that you've done in public health throughout the years. Uh, it's something that I think just about every American is benefiting from at some level, and we uh, we really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat and really looking forward to having Everybody come to New Orleans for ATA. It's going to be a great meeting, and I'm looking forward to all the dialogue.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at or send a direct message to at Chimose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like
1: it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.